What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. It's time for Lickin' On Lending. Welcome, everybody. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Lickin' On Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news, all related to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Transformational Mortgage Solutions. To participate in today's program, our guest call in line is 646-716-4972. Now here's your host of Lickin' On Lending, David Lickin. Let's begin. Welcome, everybody. It is Monday, April 12th, 2021. That's for all you listening on a downloaded basis. Obviously, if you're listening live, you know what day of the week it is. Anyway, so good to have you here. This podcast is created by mortgage professionals. It is for mortgage professionals. We're so grateful to have you as our listener. Again, our commitment is to bring you timely information in an audio format that you can listen to anytime and anywhere. And we have so many listeners from coast to coast, wherever you are at in the USA. I want to say thank you for tuning in live. We got a good audience, and it's probably because we got a really exciting hot topic today. We got Kevin Crichton coming in. He's an entrepreneurial leader who operates a business within a family owned environment. He joined EMM in 2012. He's done a great job, president, CEO, a lot of tremendous information. I met Kevin through Les Parker, and Les Parker, again, is one of the guys I go to for critical thought. What's going on? What do you see happening? And he says, oh, he kept talking about Kevin, Kevin Crichton, Kevin Crichton. So I said, we got to get Kevin on the program. And then my good friend, longstanding old friend that's still around, Tim Murphy, reached out and said, hey, I got this guy that I'm working with. Uh, would you like to have Kevin Crichton? I said, yes, Kevin. Tim, can you make that happen? So, Tim, thank you so much. If anyone knows National Mortgage News, you remember the name Tim Murphy. It's so good to see him active in the marketplace Appreciate my conversations with him also. And we have a number of others affiliated with him and Kevin's team on the podcast are listening live. So anyway, so good to have everyone here. So stay tuned to the Hot Topics segment a little bit later. Want to say we're proud to be a part of the Industry Syndicate. Go check out industrysyndicate.com, all of the podcasts that are there. Business update from Finastra. Please join Finastra's inaugural data points. Business update, and it's April 14th, 2021. It's from 1.30 to 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Data Points is a quarterly business update to keep you informed on what's happening at Finastra, but also what's happening in a broader sense of the word in the fintech world. Again, Finastra, are so grateful to have them as one of the anchor key podcast sponsors, but you will want to find out what they're doing. Again, Finastra, third largest fintech company in the world. So we do want to pay attention to what they're saying because they have a good amount of information they bring. Other sponsors we want to say thank you, of course, is to the Mortgage Bankers Association of America. I love what Mike Frantoni had to say on the January 4th podcast was economic update. Also what Bob Brooksmith and team are doing for their town hall meetings, keeping us informed of all that's going on. Also want to say a special thank you to Lenders One and the Mortgage Collaborative. We're a part of both of these wonderful co-ops. Love the MBA and we encourage you to number one, be a member of the MBA. But then if you want to get up close and personal with your peers, find out what's going on, peer data analysis with the vendors as well, which we're one of them, you can join Lenders One 
or the Mortgage Collaborative. Also, Community Mortgage Lenders of America does a great job of helping independent mortgage bankers have their voice heard. They work nicely with the MBA. I like how the teamwork is. Teamwork. Need a lot of teamwork today. Also, Indicom, a technology firm, is a sponsor that provides mortgage expertise in the way of automation, outsourcing, and compliance to the mortgage industry. They do a great job. Go listen to the podcast we did in August with Linda Bomar. Got to get her back on as they have some more updates of what's going on. Thank you for your sponsorship, as well as Incelerate. Josh Friend does a great job on a leading edge technology that brings that mortgage expertise to the pre-designed campaigns that come together through their CRM and through their other tools and technology. It's so much more than a CRM. And uh, check out the podcast. It's still getting downloaded like crazy. August 17th, 2020, we had Josh Friend on the podcast and uh, I've referred him a lot of business and everyone I refer to him says, man, Dave, what a wealth of knowledge in that guy. Also thrilled to have both Knowledge Coop as well as Mobility MMI, Mortgage Market Intelligence, as well as Modix as sponsored. These organizations do a great job of supporting the industry. Thank them all for their sponsorship. Also, finally, Alice, Alan, and Matt for their contribution each every week. Welcome to the Lickin' a Lending Hot Topics segment today. It is very exciting to have as our guest, Kevin Crichton. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about leadership. He is definitely a leader in the industry, a thought leader for sure. And Les Parker's a good, good friend. He's one of the people he says, Kevin has got it together. He's one of the critical thinkers. It's not surprising that Bob Brooksman reached out to him recently to ask him thoughts on things. So Bob Brooksman, of course, I'm talking about with the MBA. So anyway, very excited to have him here. He is the president and COO of EMM Mortgage, and that's been since 2012. He is a great individual with a lot of great thoughts. Kevin, good to have you here. Let's get our listeners get a chance to meet you. How long have you been in the industry and how did you get into the industry? So listening, a great show, a lot of great uh, comments from some of the folks you had on there. And I'm very excited to be part of that. So I kind of fell into the business, as many of us probably said, back in the 80s. I was actually an accountant. I was working for a large Fortune 500 company in New York City as a controller, living in the Philly area. So I was traveling a bunch and it was kind of boring. At you know three in the afternoon, my head would hit the desk, and I, I didn't like what I was doing. So I started literally looking at the paper. You had to look for the want ads, right? Mm-hmm. And you had to look for who was hiring. And so I found an ad that Travelers Mortgage at that time, who had bought a mortgage company, who had gone public. The company was Brokers Mortgage Services. It went public. Travelers scooped them up with a deal that was a five-year earn-out, to be specific, and they were expanding. They were the number one or number two issuer of private label securities at the time, along with Citibank, and they needed to expand their finance and their accounting aspects, so I got hired there after many interviews and uh, pressing to uh, run the accounting and finance department for Travelers Mortgage. So that was the beginning of my career back in 86. Years later, GE Capital purchased Traveler's Mortgage, which I stayed yeah. on for a while. During that time, even leading up to that, I got the opportunity to train under Jack Welsh. We uh, had a partnership at Travelers with GE, you can imagine. Yeah. And then we spent a lot of time up in Grotenville, up, which is where the GE did all yeah. the corporate training. So mm-hmm. really, I, I, I kind of worked for Travelers, but I got a lot of GE capital experience during those years and then worked for them for a short duration. At that time, a very young guy, 29 years old, like, yeah, I don't really want to work for these big companies. Let me go try something else. And I got recruited to help run and take a company public in New York. And, and, and from there, the career took off and went from a, being a lonely accountant to CFO, treasurer, running secondary, running back office. So I started to gain experience servicing over the next few years, had a couple different stints here and there, ultimately ending up 
up years later, as I ran a few businesses, owned a few businesses, I, I kind of saw the mountaintop and I saw the, the valley at the same time. My experience has been up and down relative to the size of companies. Before this company, before EMM Loans, I was a senior executive at uh, Bank America, which was countrywide prior. Again, I got recruited out there to help out in the 07 market when uh, everything was blowing up to run nothing else but loss mitigation, which was a thankless job, but probably the focus of everyone's attention back then. I started Countrywide back in 2007, sitting right next to Angela Mozilla and a few other unnamed executives who were definitely on the hot seat at that time, and things were blowing up pretty good across the industry, not just Countrywide. And so I worked it. We did what we could to mitigate. Mitigation is not elimination of loss. It's mitigating your losses. And we did a good job to do that. But the market just continued to sink during that time period. And it's kind of a thankless process. But ultimately, I ran products and pricing for the bank. And then at some point, to be honest, you talk about my football background. Yes, I played football my entire life until I was an adult and coached it since that time. My kids have played football. I've coached them. I've been involved as the president of a football parents club at colleges for my kids, all that. That was great. I'm 60 years old right now, so my football background's behind me, but the sport gave me a lot of experience. Without that sport, I wouldn't be here. It gave me the discipline. It gave me the focus. It it taught me how to work hard. Long story short, it's something that's part of my background. It's not the only part of my background. My work ethic from the the football aspect and growing up, having a job was the disciplines I learned. I wasn't always the smartest or the sharpest bulb in the pack, but I was one of the guys that it was hard to outwork me. My work ethic, the time I would spend at the office, when you had to be in the office. So I love the business we're in. I've learned it up and down, sideways. I learn something every day. And when I stop learning, that'll probably be the time which I don't need to be in this industry any longer. But every day goes by, I don't really ever not learn on a daily basis. But uh, and I think that's the key. It keeps you excited. It keeps you interested. It keeps you going. And I don't want to be a know-it-all. There's too much in the world and too much in this business to learn on a daily basis. I love the fact you highlight the point is you're always learning, which means you're a constant student of the industry, which is the reason why Professor Les enjoys talking to you and critical thought. Your knowledge of the secondary markets, you're using MBS Live on the mobile app, and you also use it on the screen mm-hmm. today. Can you give a real good summation of what convexity risk is for those of our listeners that are not familiar with that term? I'm probably going to be more layman about it than anyone else. I mean, I really think sometimes we overbake the aspects of convexity risk. It's there. It exists. It's never going to go away, sometimes greater than others. The idea when you're hedging, if you're doing a straight hedge, you bring in a loan, you're locking every day, you run it off a fallout model. Some people run it off of some other models, but we, we do a basic fallout model. And the problem with hedging in that respect is that you can never be ahead of it, right? You're always reacting to the market. So again, if the market's going in one direction always, pretty easy to hedge, right? Because you stay ahead of you either go bearish or you go bullish. You're either putting more trades on to cover your hedge or you're pulling it out and going long. What we do basically is we cover some of that convexity risk, that differential that I can't cover, the anticipation of the market moving one way or the other with some optional coverage, which is also risky because it used to be you can do a mortgage-backed optional coverage. Today, it's got to be in the treasury side, futures, options, mm-hmm. whatever it may be. So you, you do get some coverage, but it's really an inefficient hedge, to be honest with you. And, and I don't pretend to be the smartest guy in the room relative to the hedging side, because it's not something that, quite honestly, if that's your one job, 
then that's great. And the analytical nature of it, can you could do this to the cows come home. What we like to do is just be more precise around predicting our pull-through and our fallout and then be simple about it. In this business, simplicity is best, in my opinion. The more complex you get about it, the more risk you take on, the more potential for extraordinary or often mistakes and issues that cost you. So, yeah, it's just a neutral process. It's not a perfect process. As we know today, we have mortgage-backed securities, but if you're looking at additional optional coverage, your choices in the treasury side, and they just don't always parallel and line up to the mortgage piece. So it's still an inefficient hedge, but in some instances, it's a necessary hedge. I want to get Matt in here just real quickly. Matt, do you have any questions on that topic, especially as he's a good customer of yours? Any questions you have for uh... <laughs> Kevin? Not questions so much as just want to echo the sentiment of it being really easy to get bogged down in thinking and talking about the convexity related issues when it's just sort of an is what it is sort of thing. And uh, from what I understand about the secondary, they have a certain ratio they want to hit where uh, a certain percentage is covered. And uh, it's not about gaming the system or trying to make money on market movements as much as it's just trying to stay balanced and protected and quote unquote optimal. You guys could probably talk more about that term than me since I don't have a secondary background. But anyway, what we try to do here, if we can, on a competitive basis is build in some assumed hedge costs, right? And they're always assumed. It's very difficult to really pinpoint your hedge costs. So if you leave yourself a little leeway, either up or down for that matter, and you can bake it in somewhat to your margin that you're showing to the consumer, and again, you're not talking about a material number, you're far better to do that and build a little fluff than you are to try and really hedge the convexity and hedge the the what-ifs, right? Because no one knows, and especially in this market. This has not been a traditional market, at least for the last year. It's not necessarily today either. You were talking about Rates spiked tremendously in the last couple of months, but probably needed to because they were abnormally too low, in my opinion. So we're yeah. kind of in the range. We're probably still short from where we need to be. If inflation's sitting near three, if that's really the number, then obviously we're still too far below on the mark on the 10-year if you're just going to use the 10-year. There's nothing wrong with higher rates, by the way. Higher rates are an indication right. the economy is strong or is inflation right. in the air, which one and the same, right? So, I mean, yep. consumers are fully employed and they have excess money and savings and they're in their good condition. There's nothing wrong with seeing threes and fours and fives on mortgages. You you want to be in a purchase market predominantly. Uh, refi market is very hard to manage. It's almost impossible to manage. So when you see higher rates, you do see the refi drop out. But you also see it, the rates are going up for a reason. Economy is doing well. People are buying homes. People are enjoying their lives. And that's a good, healthy market. There's nothing wrong with it. So we've gotten spoiled. If equities get racked, there may be short covering rally in the treasury side, the mortgage side, but that's not a long-term play. That's just a short-term. Oh, no, I was saying that in terms of home values and refi markets, I think there's some refi demand to be had there as well. It doesn't seem like refi demand is dropping off nearly as fast as it normally does, given the rate spike we've had. Well, I think it's also because of the tremendous uptick in the uh, equity portion of people's homes. I mean, we're seeing yeah. tremendous value in homes. So people are realizing, hey, they bought it a year ago and it's up 100000 Well, what do you want to do yep. with Johnny's tuition? Well, we could borrow money from the house. What do you want to do with the pool? Oh, it needs to be fixed. Let's go borrow money from the house. I mean, those mm-hmm. cash-out scenarios, more so than a rate and term probably, because the equity value is going to stay for quite a while until we get some type of leveling off or even a a decline in the values of homes and purchases. I mean, if you can find a place to buy, purchases are still strong. One thing that's affecting the market that will have a negative impact for the remainder of the year is the fact that normally in a normalized market, you have a level of foreclosures. You have a level of homes that come on the market 
relative to people can't afford it. They lost their jobs in this instance and are being foreclosed or are being worked on with their servicer and they put the house on the market. Well, we have these forbearances and we have a moratorium now on foreclosure. So these homes that should have came on the market by now are not going to come on the market until sometime next year, even at that point. So the inventory definitely crunched for a lot of reasons. That's one of them. And I think just the fact there's a lot of free money out there, and that's what it is. And you're borrowing money at two some odd percent on a tax-effective yield. You're borrowing at one and a half percent, depending on your tax bracket. Why wouldn't you borrow as much as you can? Why wouldn't you buy that house? That's what we're seeing in the market right now. Different bubble than we saw back in 06, 07, 08 for different reasons, healthier reasons. I'm not expecting any blow-up like we saw back then. Back then, credit was too free and easy. Today, it's not the case. Yeah. 21 is a good year. 2022 could be a good year. It, it just depends on inflation and what's going to go on. Great topic on inventory and housing, especially with some of the latest housing numbers. And there's such pent-up demand. 2.4 million homes potentially could come flooding into the market at some point in time. There's so much mm-hmm. demand for that. I don't think we have a housing bubble. I want to get your perspective on the IPO market with mortgage lenders. Is this something that if you had a company of a certain size that you would consider doing, or do you think this is not a wise move? Your thoughts on the IPOs? Well, it's different for each company. Each company has a different need for capital. I think the fact that the markets opened up, that allowed the well-run, usually larger companies that are in need. These weren't deals where ownership, one that was cashing out, walking away. These were necessities. These were IPOs that were done to feed the animal, to feed the machine, that is cranking and quite honestly, acquiring servicing, running a business takes a lot of capital, especially with some of the size of the quickens of the world and the rest of them have gone public. They had a need to go public or raise money in a private basis, which honestly, the amount of money they needed, especially with some of the forbearance stuff and what's been going on mm-hmm. the past year, they absolutely needed this capital. A lot of companies are going to be crunched for capital. A couple of years back, it was a hot topic. I mean, honestly, the market's opened up. The equity market is there. The SPAC market opened up, good or bad. I'm not going to comment good or bad on that. And I think these are necessities. So I think you don't go public just for the sake of public. And it's a bad move. An investor who wants to invest in your company and you as a management team are cashing out, walking away, that's a bad public offering, right? These were public offerings for necessity at the same time that had proven track records that had to put their capital to use. So they were warranted and it's probably long overdue to be honest with you with some of these companies. It totally changes the way you manage your business, but I am interested, is this a trend that you anticipate seeing? Is there a crossover point where someone gets to a certain size and they really need to do that? Your thoughts, Kevin? Well, again, there's all kinds of capital available in the market. I personally wouldn't like the public market because there's too much restriction on running your business. The reporting and the necessity to worry about what you're making and your stock price, to me, is basically a distraction from running the business the way you, you should be running it. Again, these are very large companies with dynamic earnings, with dynamic size, and they absolutely needed that. They did it for the right reason, in my opinion. I don't know all the great details I've read few things. I've talked to a few people in the market. They did it in necessity. And I don't know if it would have happened if we didn't have the pandemic. I think the pandemic and the amount of volume, record volume levels in 2020 and demands on capital because of forbearance and foreclosure processing took a toll on a lot of these companies as far as their capital uh, needs. And I think the public market was a beautiful thing for them. I think it was the right thing to do. I think most of them kept most of the ownership off to the side and they didn't sell the entire company to the marketplace. Some that wanted to go public couldn't, so they linked up with other partners to do what they need to do in, in, in a temporary basis, i.e. Amerihome and some others. So, yeah, I think the larger players absolutely needed the capital, and they hit the right market to do it. 
I think you'll see those companies act and probably do things differently because they are in the public eye versus being not in the public eye previous to that. So they're going to have to make some changes in that respect. And I think the you know, the players that went public, I think, uh, again, to reiterate, I think they, they absolutely need it and, and hit the market at the right time. Don't get me wrong. I mean, Quicken, some of the brilliant people over there. I have, I have personal oh, yeah. friends, a lot of them. But yeah. at the same time, they're not like a Bank of America or City or Chase where they have multiple lines of business and they're somewhat diversified. Make no mistake about it. Mortgage entities, they're heavily based towards interest rate environment and what happens with purchasing of homes. I mean, they service loans. They do some other stuff. But they're premiums that get paid in the market are, are subpar to, say, a bank and some other financial institutions. want to get over talking about the various origination channels. Uh, UWM is one of the largest wholesalers. We're seeing others quickly come into it. We're seeing, like, Alice's company, the Union Home, opened up a correspondent yeah. channel in a very conservative, very, I thought, very smart way to do it. want to get your thoughts on that? I've always believed in the TPO market. I started, you know, at Travelers. We were in wholesale at that time, TPO. Nick, yeah. That was 35 years ago. I think it's one of the better channels in our marketplace. I think the broker has a certain mindset and a certain way to service their local markets that some of the larger companies can't do without finding some folks and throwing a branch in that location. I think the brokers do a phenomenal job in their local markets. If a broker tries to expand beyond local markets, it's where it gets a little dicey, right? Because they don't typically have people in the wherewithal and the systems to do so. And that's okay. But I think if they serve a phenomenal purpose in the industry relative to servicing the, the customer in the local markets. And I've always thought that. I mean, even when people were bailing out and TPO went down to 6% of the production in our industry, I was still staying, of course, doing TPO. I believe in it. I mean, I worked for one of the largest companies in the TPO market when I was a countrywide B of A. But besides that, the whole rhetoric when things blew up in the uh, market of 07 to 12, brokers being the cause, that was wrong. It was just wrong. People not knowing what they were talking about. It was the lenders who were wrong. It wasn't the brokers who were wrong. You know, brokers don't really produce... Hmm. fraud. I mean, they get involved with loans here and there, but honestly, I think the broker community got a bad rap back then. I think today the broker community is showing just what they're all about. And uh, it's up to us to work with the right brokers and the right relationships. And I think from my company to some of the other companies like UHM and some others, I think we all do that. And I think uh, it's a great business. I think it's controllable business. I think you can really buy what you want to buy more so than retail. I mean, retail, yep. you got to make your loan officers happy. you got to keep people in, in place. you got a realtor relationship. And if you, you botch your relationship or botch a loan or two, you can literally lose your whole uh, retail originations yep. office yep. If, if things are right. But in the broker side, you lose a broker, not that we want to. We really pay a lot of attention to our partners. But it's not the end of the world. It's something that you can recover from. So it's always been, to me, a more manageable business, whether it be table funding TPO brokers or whether it be correspondent business. Whether it be delegated or non-delegated, I think the world is a channel, and I've been in it since I was a 23-year-old kid. Let's get over to Alice. Any questions for our guest? Well, I was just kind of running through some notes here, Dave, and I, I think we haven't talked about technology yet. So, you know, what technology is EMM going to be investing in going forward? There's so many different ways for companies to go. I'd love to see where you think the best focus is. Yeah, so we're doing a lot of different things. What we're doing is... We have invested and made a commitment on what I'll call bot technology. We're actually working uh, with some companies to automate. If you can study what one of our folks do, it's pick a job, pick a closer, pick an underwriter, a processor. And you can watch what they do during the day and the buttons they push and the things they do. 
you can pretty much replicate a lot of that through the robotic environment, right? So it's basically learning and going back through what everybody does and then developing and training the, the automation, the computers, if you will, to replace certain aspects of what the staff is doing. This is not to replace our people. This is to make them more efficient so we can grow. So I don't have to, every time another big wave of production comes in, we got to be out there killing ourselves to hire people. This allows us to help our people in the trenches produce more business without overburdening them, if you will. So there was a lot of burnout last year because we didn't necessarily have these robotics in place, but we went out just in the last six months and made a commitment money-wise to engage a third party to help us develop these things. And we're well into it. So we're things like Automating a CD where the closing department doesn't need to push it, the, the robot will do it. Automating the disclosure process where I don't have a bunch of people reviewing every doc and setting it out where robotics can do that. Helping a processor to do certain aspects of their job so that they can now carry a pipeline of 40 loans instead of 20 loans. Things like that are all being done today. I think that's the single most important thing that we can do. The back end relative to delivering the product to the consumer, where you're getting into remote closings and things like that, I think that's great. I, I don't think it's something that's going to be as mission critical as what I just mentioned earlier, because I think your operational process, before you get to the back end, I think you get to fix the front end. So we're approaching the front end first so that when the consumer comes to us, they have a great experience all the way through. It gets done more expediently. It gets done with less errors because the robots are actually more accurate, obviously. And then when you get to the end game to deliver a good product of closing, to be electronic in some means is important. I don't think the entire process is necessary today. I think a lot of customers still want to touch and feel the documents and be there in front of somebody. So even if you had a completely automated closing process, i.e. e-notes and RON and all stuff, we've told our customers and a lot of them don't necessarily want to do that. I mean, maybe that'll change over time. What they do want is they want expediency in the process. They want less paperwork. They want the time frame to be lessened, and they want it to be as automated as possible. So that's where we're focusing all our time and money and attention right now in the robotics, if you will, of the process. And we're, we're making great strides as we speak. Yeah, there's so much you can do with robotics. With that's where we get mm -hmm. the term bot for those of you that are not technology oriented. I think it's just such a critical area uh, that we focus on. And looking at some of the questions, what are your thoughts and predictions on where the workforce is going to be working and what does it look like uh, moving forward post COVID? So I think we all doubted what we could do from a remote situation when we first went into this last year. Although I will tell you, we as a company, myself included, were pushing people remote. We were hiring people from wherever they really were. It didn't matter if you were in the building. So we've been hiring and doing remote work for quite a long time. When March 13th hit, exact date, I had right. to tell the entire company, 300 folks, that no more in the building, get home and start working. It was a beautiful thing. It was plug and play, and everyone was up and running. Because we had done it, we had tested it before, and it's gone mm -hmm. pretty well. To have them at home every day and not be sitting at the water cooler having the social events that you typically have in an office. It takes a lot out of how you build culture. It does strain yeah. the leadership like myself to figure out ways to continue the culture, to continue the camaraderie. I think what we've all found out is that we may be more efficient being at home yeah. because there's less distractions, assuming you have the right workplace at home, than sitting in the office and Mary or Joe come by your desk and they want to talk for half an hour or some other distraction or whatever's going on. We found that we're more efficient at home at this point. So what we have done literally is we've been admits we renegotiated our lease. We had almost 12,000 square feet in a certain area for a lot of the corporate office people. We downsized it to about eight. 
we made all offices and cubicles much larger than they were there. So we took an office that could handle almost 80 or 100 people down to 50. And honestly, we probably won't fill those 50. We'll probably have 30 to 40 people max at any given time. A lot of that's because of some of the essential workers we have to handle some paper, notes, things like that, mail, maybe occasionally HR, ITs in the office. It's really going to run the gamut. We're, we're going to be practicing hoteling. We have some software we have. That we're going to allow people to basically reserve. It's like you go into a hotel. It's like going on a trip. I need a hotel for two nights. Well, I need a cubicle for two days when I'm in the corporate office because I have to do something there with somebody. That's fine. So we're going to be doing that. We're very stringent, very concerned, and very protective of our employees. So we will not allow anyone in the building that doesn't have some, you know, resemblance of either vaccinations or, or testing or something to that nature. We went the whole year. We protected our staff, the ones that were in the office, about a dozen people. Knock on wood, all stayed healthy and happy, and I want to keep it that way. I, I think we're going to see, not just in the mortgage banking industry, but throughout the world here with different industries, I think you'll see the old school come back and force people back into the office in many aspects. But I think that the thinkers, people who trust and believe and have some systems yeah. to handle it, will allow the remote working to, to continue. Assuming that the work ethic continues to grow and becomes more efficient through different aspects of what we'll deploy, I don't have a problem if somebody wants to sit in Florida, while our corporate office is in New Jersey, as long as the job gets done and they do it efficiently, I have no problem. It actually saves a lot of money and, and makes us more effective. It just challenges me and my team to figure out ways to continue building and expanding the culture of a business. So that's on me. That's not on them. Yeah. No, I think you're spot on. I think more and more companies are anticipating that. I am surprised that the amount of square footage is actually increasing. Uh, they're anticipating bringing their workforce back. I think they may be a little bit surprised that a lot of them are saying, no, you know what? I like this. That commute got to be a real pain. And uh, this is working very nicely for me. And, look, and then they're going to have statistics that provide data that suggests I'm much better off at home. So good stuff. Right. We could go on and on. I enjoyed this interview. I enjoyed the conversation. It flows so well. well. I can see why so many people turn to you as the thought leader, Bob Brooks, but being one of the more recent ones. Uh, great perspective and good basis behind your perspective. Very articulate. And I appreciate you being here with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I'll do it again. Yeah, Let me know. Let's do have you back again soon. I have several requests saying, get them back. That was really a great interview. Next week, we've got Joe D. Dominicus of NRL Mortgage, another one of our clients, as Kevin is one of our clients. And he said, do you just have your clients on? No, we have not clients on here as well. If you want to come on, we'd love to hear from you. It's more about what you want to say. We're not into producing infomercials here. We don't do that. We want to share thought leadership with our industry. Joe D. Dominicus of NRL is doing some very innovative things. And uh, I can't wait to get him on and share his perspective as well. That's going to be the same kind of level of interview as we've had here today with Kevin. So be sure to tune in next week as we interview our good friend, Joe D. Dominicus. I want to say a special thank you again to our sponsors, Finastra, CMLA, as well as Indicom, Accelerate, Mobility, MMI, as well as Modex, the MBA, Knowledge Coop, Lenders One, and Mortgage Collaborative. Folks, thank you so much for sharing this podcast with others. And we thank you so much for being a part of our listening and ever-growing community of listeners. Thank you so much. Have a great week, everybody. You've been listening to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lickin of Transformational Mortgage Solutions. Join us next week, and thanks for listening. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo, and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.